Today's TribCast is presented by Visit San Antonio. Join us in celebrating the positive effect travel and tourism has on San Antonio during National Travel and Tourism Week, May 6th through 12th. Learn more at visitsanantonio.com slash travel effect. And the Latino Center for Leadership Development. America is at a crossroads. Will its future incorporate or excommunicate Latinos? Join the Latino Center for Leadership Development in Austin on June 9th for a national discussion on the state of Latino affairs. More at latinopolicyconf.eventbrite.com. Texas talking oh, What was that that you said? Texas talking oh. Gonna hoop upside your head Texas talking Tell me who can you trust When Texas guys are Texas Hey Texas, this is Lupe Valdez I almost didn't say yes to introducing this week's TripCast But then I remembered how much everyone just loves to vote in the runoff And I wanted to remind you folks that early voting starts on Monday Get out and vote now here's our host, Emily Ramshaw. Thank you. This is Emily Ramshaw here on Wednesday, May 9th with your Texas Tribune Tribcast. I'm joined this week by Executive Editor Ross Ramsey. Howdy. Political Reporter Patrick Svitek. Good afternoon. And Criminal Justice Reporter Jolie McCullough. Hello. Hello. We'll be taking your questions via Facebook and Twitter, so please go ahead and send them our way. Uh, Patrick, let's start with you and a forecast of Friday night's Democratic gubernatorial debate between Andrew White and Lupe Valdez. First, like, just even get us to this point. It seems like it was pretty <laughs> complicated even to get a debate on the schedule. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and this goes back to the beginning of the runoff when Andrew White, uh, you know, issued a kind of a debate challenge to Lupe Valdez. At the time, her campaign uh, expressed openness to debating him, but certainly was in no rush. If you recall, uh, you know, he was the runner-up in the primary. She was the top vote-getter. Uh, and so politically, it probably uh, didn't serve her to engage him in a debate, at least that early on in the runoff period. Uh, this all changed, obviously, about a week ago or two weekends ago when she had that, uh, you know, very uh, unsatisfactory answer at the Jolt Town Hall about her uh, Dallas County Sheriff record. And that set in motion uh, you know, a series of events that I, I think you could argue uh, led to her campaign uh, seeing the need for a debate so she could talk about some of these issues where she clearly wasn't giving satisfactory answers to certain constituencies. Can you just stop there for a second and explain to me, I keep seeing everybody sort of writing around this, what was unsatisfactory? Why, what does that word even mean? Like, what did she say that was Sure, not unsatisfactory to the group Jolt that was hosting it, which is a, a group of kind of young Latino activists uh, that I believe was formed just last year. Um, so she was asked uh, to talk about uh, how her uh, department interacted with ICE, federal immigration authorities, when she was uh, sheriff. And the answer that she gave did not really engage with the actual question. She talked about how she opposes the uh, sanctuary cities ban. She talked about the need for comprehensive immigration reform. All great things and all things that you would expect to hear from a Democratic candidate. Uh, but it was an answer that didn't go into too much detail on what she was actually asked about, which was her record. They wanted to hear about detainers and all that, right? Right. They wanted to just hear a, a little more about that. And she did make some references to it, but uh, it just wasn't a, a direct answer that she gave. And so is the theory then that they believe she'll do better in person in a debate? Because isn't sort of the risk, you know, putting somebody on stage? 
there's absolutely risk here for her. I mean, she's throughout this campaign, she's had a number of uh, unsteady outings, whether it's before newspaper editorial boards, whether it's uh, at events like the one we saw uh, two weekends ago. Uh, and so there's, I think there's substantial risk here, but I think that there was enough of a, um, I want to say outcry, but enough of a demand from Democratic activists and Democratic groups uh, for this to happen. And I think that the uh, controversy two weekends ago where she struggled to give that answer, you know, really put people over the edge and, and said we need to have a debate. They also have to do a debate, you know, in real terms if either whoever wins is going to get a debate with Greg Abbott. Right. Can't, you know, go into your own runoff and say, I'm afraid to debate, you know, because I'm the front runner and I'm protecting it and then have much of a case to make against an incumbent governor that you're trying to beat in November. Right. So what are either of your expectations for the performance? I mean, what, you know, going into this, who's your money on? I, you know, I don't know that I have any money on it. I think it's a fairly, you know, it's a remarkably low-grade debate for a statewide race. It's, you know, low-key. It's on a Friday night. Uh, it's not going to be on um, television anywhere. It's going to be live-streamed. Uh, it's in a church in Austin. You know, this is hardly, you know, the circus under the big top. This is a little sideshow right now. And, you know, what would be remarkable about it is if it breaks out of that expectation. Right. It'll be interesting to see what the questions are. I mean, both these candidates have appeared jointly at events throughout this campaign where they've both, both been tossed the same general question, you know, talk about health care, talk about education, talk about criminal justice reform. And so we've seen them in that setting, and there hasn't been many huge differences between them, uh, ideologically at least, and they haven't really clashed in those settings. Um, but it'll be fascinating to see if, if they're asked about some of the kind of uh, sharper topics on the table, including the, you know, the topic that she struggled to answer a few weeks ago. Or Andrew um, White's own business. Exactly. And Andrew White, you know, I mean, I think people assume that, you know, he goes into this with the upper hand because he's proven to be a more polished candidate, a more prepared candidate. But there are still some topics that he could get right. grilled on that could put him on the defensive, including this uh, company that he's now divesting from, uh, but that is, uh, you know, has been criticized as a, quote, border security business. It uses uh, heartbeat detection technology to find people who are hiding in, in vehicles and other things like that. And so that's something he could be put on uh, the defensive over. And then there's always this, this question of his uh, abortion stance. You know, he's from the beginning of the race. This has been something that has dogged him. And it's, it's kind of calmed down more recently. But there's still a segment of the Democratic primary electorate that no doubt views that as a, a deal breaker. Mm -hmm. And so I think there are plenty of uh, sharp objects on the table that could be thrown at him as well. It seemed like even a, a fool's errand to get this thing schedule, didn't, didn't it? I mean, it was, you know, supposed to be one place and then another. There was no date. Then there was a date, you know. I mean, does that sort of <laughs> reflect the sort of level of seriousness that people are taking this race with? I just with? think, you know, there, there's a level of disarray right now in, the, in, the, in this particular part of the Democratic Party. I mean, you know, Beto O'Rourke's running a pretty good campaign, but he's running it away from the party apparatus. <laughs> this is in the middle of the party apparatus. Neither of these campaigns uh, has shown primetime tendencies yet. That's as gently as I can put it. Right. And, <laughs> and I think they're having a hard time putting this thing together. Who's going to watch? I mean, does this move the needle uh, at all? Uh, other than, than, yeah. Right. I'm not even sure the rest of us are interested. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, so it's not going to be televised. I don't think there are plans for it to be televised as of right now. And so that obviously limits the, the audience. It is going to be live streamed by KXAN, which is the, I think, NBC affiliate here in Austin on, on their website and other news outlets can carry it. And so they'll get an audience through that. But I think that 
you know, the, the, the audience for this debate is going to be, yes, the media, but also the Democratic activists who, who may be generally uh, undecided and who are also likely to participate in a runoff. But in terms of reaching a, uh, you know, a broad statewide audience, in terms of reaching uh, a group representative of, of the group that could show up in November, right. probably not going to happen. Right. right. Well, just a reminder, Facebook and Twitter viewers, you can post your questions in the comments and we'll try to get to them. Uh, Ross, the number of people who tune in for this debate will probably be only slightly surpassed by the number of people who actually turn out for this run the number of people runoff election. To this right? <laughs> yeah, right. Our read, or maybe our listenership is higher. Um, you wrote in a great column this week, quote, it's hard enough to get voters to the table once and harder still to get them to come back for seconds. So walk me through what your expectations are for May 22nd, this runoff election? Pretty low. I mean, there'll be a couple of hot spots. You know, if there's a local race here or a local race there, you know, with good good voter turnout, you might be able to get people to show up, you know, and that could be anything from a county commission race to all the way up to a Texas House race or maybe even a, a congressional contest in a couple of cases. But, you know, neither party has a ton on the ballot here that is a real attraction to voters. Voters come to big fights. You know, a really great example of this, in 2016 when the Republican presidential candidates, that, that nomination wasn't settled when they got to Texas. And the voter turnout in the Republican primary that year was almost 20%, wow. which sounds terrible, except it's <laughs> except remarkable. It's extraordinary. Yeah. <laughs> it's about double the norm. Right. Um, you know, people come to a fight, people come to a car wreck. Uh, this race doesn't look like a car wreck in the First round, only 7% of the registered voters showed up in the Democratic primary. How many point. people is that, roughly? Uh, it's 7% of 15 million. So All right, so do the math. However, that is about yeah. a million. Yeah. Um, about a million and a half showed up in the Republican primary, 10.2%. And if you look at years past, you know, the, the turnout dies in runoffs. Mm -hmm. You know, in, in 2014, the Democrats went from 4.1% turnout to 1.5%. Yikes. Um, you know, in 2010, there were no statewide races, but the Democrats went from 5.2% in the primary to 0.21% in the runoff. I, you know, I think it's going to be a pretty skinny affair, and it means that a very small number of people are going to decide races from on the Democratic side, from the governor through some of these congressional races and some of the state house races. Right. I mean, why are these turnout numbers for the runoffs are like? I mean, when you're talking about 0.21 percent, again, if you do the math on that, I mean, yeah. what is that like? A few thousand people. Right. Uh, you know, how is it that the state is making decisions based on? I mean, based on who's on the ballot. How is it even like legal to have that those few people representing? You know, not voting is a way to vote. You know, not not mm -hmm. taking part is one of your choices, mm -hmm. and most people choose not to take part. You know, even in our biggest elections, we get relatively mm -hmm. small numbers. Texas was um, 47th, I think, in the 2016 presidential race. Thank you, Hawaii. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, there's uh, they have too turn, many volcanoes. Turnout's a real problem, and you know, part of it is a connection between, you know, my you know, people's perception of whether their vote matters or not. Some of it is a perception of whether they're welcome at the polls. Some of it is, you know, has to do with, you know, if they like the status quo, they don't vote. It would be interesting to see. I mean, there's no real way to know. Well, it, it, I feel like it's got to be a lot of people don't know that there are runoffs. I mean, it right? sort of, like it's sort of seems be. to me like this is a marketing problem. And, I, you know, it does, right. should it just fall on the candidates to be marketing these elections or should it be the responsibility of the state? The problem is the state's leadership has no incentive to. You know, you can tell people about this stuff. And, you know, there are plenty of places where they could have found out about it. You know, Texas Tribune readers, for example. But... You know, a lot of people just don't see a stake in this particular election. It's a relatively low turnout election. 
if you're not in a part of this, if you're a Republican and there's not a big statewide race that you care about and there's not a local race, you might go to the movies that day. Mm -hmm. Well, Denise on social media says Ross is the most endearing Debbie Downer when it comes to voter <laughs> turnout. So, Ross, what would you, you all right, I'm going to make you guess again. What are you envisioning that runoff numbers will look like? What percentage would you guess right now of Republican and Democratic primary voters, uh, or sorry, uh, registered voters will turn uh, out? The Democrats haven't broken 2% in a runoff in the last 10 years, mm -hmm. so I'll say under 2%. Um, all right. The Republicans... Uh, are usually about two and a half percent in elections like this. Um, they don't have a terrifically contested statewide race, so I'll say I'll put them at about two percent. Mm -hmm. But well, who knows? Well, none of you are obviously political activists. Wise Up Texas asks, "What's your advice about what we can do to motivate our communities to get out and become more civically engaged on either side of the aisle?" You know, I think about what Jolt did, um, and right. I'm not trying to, like, you know, <laughs> weigh in on either side here, yeah. but I mean, you know, I think that some of these events that these groups are putting on, particularly in the context of these, what have been up until that point, very low volume runoffs, have been somewhat consequential. Obviously, the, the town hall that Jolt held and the tough questions that they asked at that town hall set in play this series of, uh, set in motion this series of events that is leading up to this long sought after debate. And so I think that you look at the way that some of these groups have asserted themselves in races, um, you know, I think that you can see some multiple examples of them being um, effective. You even look back to like, for example, the Texas AFL-CIO mm -hmm. um, Non-endorsement. You know, initially yeah. not endorsing Beto O'Rourke, uh, you know, apparently because he didn't show up at their convention or something like that. You know, that, that set in motion this, you know, vigorous discussion. I think he came back and he talked to them and engaged with them and, you know, illuminated them on the on the positions that they had some, some reservations about. And so I think that you've seen, uh, you know, across the spectrum, I know I just mentioned two Democratic groups, but, you know, you've seen across the spectrum different activist groups hold different events and, and try to hold people within their own party uh, accountable this cycle, and it's led to some real uh, results. The sharper the answer to the question, why am I voting, the higher the turnout. So if you can tell people, if, if the answer to why am I voting is something that is tangible or important to them, they'll show up to vote. And if it's a vague answer about civic health and whatnot, you can't get them to vote. You know, my first election in college was we were voting whether to uh, Denton should be wet or not. And a lot of us beer drinkers voted. I mean, <laughs> Finally, a, something we care well, about. There was a tangible yeah. question, you know, yeah. because beer, right? And Scott asks, could low turnout and runoffs indicate a growing disdain for partisan politics? I don't know if it's a growing disdain. It's been like an endless disdain. Yeah, and we've, you know, we've had periods of high partisan activity, you know, over the course of our history and still had high turnout. I, you know, I really think it's, you know, people either showing up or not showing up, depending on whether the questions at hand matter to them. Mm -hmm. Well, if you thought Ross was Debbie Downer, wait till you hear from Jolie, who's coming up next. Uh, but before our next topic, I'd like to quickly thank another TribCast sponsor, Raise Your Hand Texas. Raise Your Hand Texas identifies breakthrough ideas to improve education, pilots them in our public schools, and supports the conditions and public policies, allowing them to scale to benefit all Texas students. For more, visit RaiseYourHandTexas.org. All right, Jolie, you've written an amazing set of stories this week on both what inmates and prison guards are enduring in Texas, uh, and I want to start with the guards. You wrote about really massive uh, shortages of prison staff, specifically at the Telford unit, which I think was your example. It's a maximum security facility near Texarkana, um, and how it's representative of a large, larger system. But talk a little bit about what you learned at Telford. Yeah, so Telford is really the extreme example right now of an understaffed prison. Uh, there are almost 200 
200 guards short. They're at 65% fully staffed. At 200 guards short. I mean, I didn't even yeah. know there were 200 guards at the whole place. So full yeah. staffing 600. And full staffing's like 530 full yeah. time. Um, and yeah, this is a prison that holds 2,500 men. Maximum um, security. So people who've, in theory, committed like really serious crimes. Yeah, and some of them. I mean, there's a lot of inmates. It has the whole range. There's a lot of inmates in here that have, you know, low security. They're able to be out of their cells for most of the day. Um, and that's kind of where this larger issue comes into play. But, yeah, I mean, it's it's a drastic shortage. that It's been growing very rapidly. Um, a prison guard there in 2015 was killed by an inmate um, who has since been sentenced to death for that murder and really since then uh, vacancies have just kind of shot so through the nobody roof. wants to work there yeah. after something like this happens so i mean tell me what your life is like if you're a guard at the telford unit right now you know i mean you described in your story like at best you're getting urine dumped on you and like at worst you're being killed yeah i don't know if anyone would describe having <laughs> urine dumped on you as at best but it was, it's a range <laughs> <laughs> um yeah so it's not you know, it's not easy at the Telford unit right now. I talked to a couple guards who've quit in the last year, um, and they, you know, one of the things that they're doing to try to fix the staffing is they have a lot of manda like of overtime. They're forcing, like, have mandatory overtime. Um, so one of the guards said, you know, they work a 48-hour, eight-day work schedule, and he was working probably about 24 hours on top of that in overtime. Wow. Um, and, wow. you know, one of the, it, it sucks for the guard as just a human, but it's also, like, it creates a risk. Like, you know, these guards are tired. Um and they're also short-staffed, so it just adds on to that danger element. You have figures showing how violence against guards has increased, but I, I was confused by the prison system's response to your data, which shows basically both the rate of vacancy of employment is getting higher and higher, and you know, uh, abuse of, of um, guards by inmates is growing, but they say there's no evidence that no these two things that are linked. Find. That was yeah, line. yeah right. so the department, um, when I, spoke to them so they still believe uh, because there's not been a specific correlation if you do look at the statewide numbers um, vacancies have gone up a little bit and um, you know assaults on guards statewide kind of fluctuates um, but when you're looking at the Telford unit it does seem to be pretty clear that the vacancies have dramatically gone up and they have the most assaults by far than any other prison um, when you're talking about serious staff assaults. There was like this amazing quote in this story from, you know, a former guard who was basically saying, you know, when he like talks to his colleagues, there are people who are literally like physically ill when they th think about getting called in to work, right? Well, yeah, at Telford, I mean, it's it's kind of notorious at this moment. I talked to a couple of people from around the state, and when you mention Telford, they're like, oh, yeah, that's, you know, so it's not great what's going on up there. Um, it's it's neither of them said they felt like they were safe when they were is, working there. is this a is this a problem at the state level is it because there's not funding or is it because uh, unemployment has gone down so much and there are better jobs for these guards that are less dangerous or um, you know what's the root of this yeah so the department has kind of touted the uh, the unemployment rate being really low right now um, you know working in a prison is generally not someone's first choice um, <laughs> and you know the pay is mediocre uh, I'd say lower than mediocre. 30, I mean, Thirty-four thousand like, to start. Right. Well, now, it's, so that's one of the things they've done. So they've upped the pay. Thirty-six thousand. Right. <laughs> and plus, like at units like Telford, they did increase. They have like a five thousand dollar hiring bonus um, if you stay for a full year, which is nobody really difficult to have to people stay for a full year. Yeah. 
Um, so life doesn't seem that much better at this unit for the inmates, candidly. I mean, you talked about like rotten meat, you know, these guys losing a bunch of weight. I mean, how, what's, what is the, what are the conditions like for inmates right now? And, and are they getting worse too? Yeah. So with the inmates, it's kind of, it's a little bit of a, like a snowball effect that when they're so short staffed, these are inmates who are generally, you know, low custody, they're able to kind of be moving about, they can go to the library, they can, you know, be out and watching TV and be socializing with other inmates. But when they're short staffed, sometimes they will often keep them in their cells for most of the day and feed them there. And, And when they feed them there, it's not the inmates who are making the food. It's not the inmates who are doing these chores. So, like, they have to—they're creating small, like, sack meals, and they've been saying that they were getting those for months and months. And it's really like some most of them are describing this as just like a peanut butter and jelly sandwich three times a day or something like the equi- the equivalent. And or like, yeah, meat that had been mystery meat, meat rat nibbles. Part, right. Yeah, yeah. And so you know, a lot of the inmates were saying they were losing weight. Others were saying like they've been to- two have told me that they were told they, they shouldn't be eating so much bread because of their heart conditions, mm-hmm. one of whom just had to get surgery, like heart surgery for... Um, right after you talked to him, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I so mean, it is, if, if the, and if part of the problem is, you know, inmate, inmate on guard assaults and like inmates being unhappy, it seems like this only exacerbates the problem when you have them cooped up in their cells all the time because there aren't enough guards to, you know, and they're being like fed crap for meals, basically. Yeah. One of the guards did say that, like it's, you can feel like the increased tension you know, or tension when right. they're being kept in their cells this long and being fed like this right um, well just a reminder facebook and twitter viewers we've got a few more minutes for questions and comments and we'll do our best to get to them um julie one other big prison story this week from you a judge finally approved this long-standing settlement around air conditioning in certain texas units what happened here and how significant is this for the rest of the system um it's very significant it's definitely a historical deal that was made um, this was really just the final stamp of approval on an agreement that was between the state and um, the attorneys who were representing inmates at the PAC unit which is a prison um, southeast of College Station. Um, So what this does is TDCJ fought for years in this lawsuit where inmates were arguing that not having air conditioning in this prison where it's routinely over 100 degrees um, is cruel and unusual punishment. Uh, A judge agreed last year and issued an injunction and then but it was a temporary injunction and instead of kind of prolonging the case and going forward with years more of back and forth in the courts uh, the state agreed to settle with the inmates and so they are going to install air conditioning at the PAC unit. And so, but that's just one unit, right? I mean, how, what are the chances this gets extrapolated other places? Because if it's cruel and unusual punishment, basically in one unit or they have to settle in one, I mean, I personally believe the Texas heat is cruel and unusual punishment and I'm not even in prison. (laughs) So what does this mean for everybody else? Yeah. So this lawsuit very clearly only focuses on the PAC unit. Um, It's a class action lawsuit that focuses on the inmates who are there. And that doesn't mean it doesn't open up, you know, different avenues. Uh, Texas has kind of started, they're looking at this subclass of inmates who are heat sensitive, those who are, you know, elderly, who have medical conditions like heart conditions, or they're on some sort of drug that makes it more dangerous for them to be in uh, the heat. They're potentially going to start looking at ways to kind of address that in the future um or like moving them to different units basically yeah because there are some there's about there's a little less than 30 of you of the units do have air conditioning uh that includes um a couple 
but that's like 30 percent of the total it's about 27 percent of the total units right. yeah so that's a, a lot so of units almost three quarters of the units don't have air conditioning yes in the livings in the living in the living cells right and why do the lawyers who did the pack unit lawsuit not just go to the next prison and say air condition this one or we'll see you in court again and then air condition this one or we see you in court again i mean doesn't I mean, the state I guess maybe they, they could, will they could yeah. isn't the state getting a signal from the courts here that you know yeah, and so that's side. something that I, I think they're considering is like, what are their steps they can do to kind of take hold of this instead of just being run by the courts? Like, well, how maybe big health can they get yeah, in front of it? I mean, it? maybe I do think there's this argument that like for you know the young inmates who are in fine health, like why should be we you know prisons should be uncomfortable, <laughs> like you know shouldn't be a place that's like just going and hanging out at the public library. It's right. like right. you know. So and that's the thing that I think t t the department will focus on is these inmates who are more like. They're more vulnerable to the heat, not necessarily everyone, but the ones who have some sort of medical condition um, or are part of some subclass. And th they're the ones that I think they'll try to look for in the future. Yeah. Great. All right. Well, one last topic today, uh, returning to the May 22nd runoffs. Patrick, uh, you are working on a story that's landing maybe today, maybe tomorrow about a big issue at play in Republican congressional runoffs in Texas, and that is just how loyal you are to Donald Trump. What? Tell us what you're learning. Yeah, this has emerged as a central dynamic or debate in pretty much every Republican congressional runoff in Texas at this point, uh, especially those for open seats. And there are many of those. Uh, that's most of them. And, um, you know, a lot of it is being driven by this group uh, called the Club for Growth, which is kind of a national limited government advocacy group. They've spent close to $2 million in Texas this cycle uh, already. And uh, a lot of their paid media uh, is putting the candidates they oppose uh, on defense over whether they are supportive of Trump now or have been supportive of Trump in the past. And they're not doing this without looking at the numbers. And the fact of the matter is that in a lot of these Republican congressional districts, the president is very, very popular. He has approval ratings uh, that you know, go up into the 90s. And they're seeing that people in these districts want to have someone who is going to be aligned with, if not Trump personally, the Trump agenda. Agenda, uh, and that people in these districts are, you know, generally satisfied so far with the policy victories that have happened under the president. Again, there's a whole other side of that ledger, which is all the other personal controversies and everything else. Um, and so, you know, the Club for Growth and, and other people who are making this contrast are really trying, I think, to um, capitalize on the, the president's popularity in the district and people's desire to see some, a congressman who's going to be uh, very supportive of mm -hmm. the, the president's agenda. Some of that showed up in the University of Texas, Texas Tribune poll back in February that, you know, Trump was... Um, a couple of um, Scotia's more popular in February than he was when he was sworn in a year mm -hmm. earlier. Uh, Republicans have really dug in behind him. It's interesting in because you think about his approval rating nationally and, you know, I mean, I wonder how his approval rating um, fares among Texas Republicans versus Republicans nationally, given that he wasn't that popular well, he, here when he was running. He's fine with Texas Republicans mm -hmm. and, you know, they're in a Republican runoff right now, so that's an issue now, whether mm -hmm. he's you know, a risk to candidates in a general election is going to be another question. Right. And, and a lot of the national numbers that you see mix Republicans with Democrats and independents, and the D's in particular 
are as against him as the Republicans are for him. Right. Yeah, and, and to be clear, in these races, it's not like anybody's you know running against Trump or explicitly anti-Trump. It's that these groups are looking for things in their past or things that they're saying at debates that can be you know one little word here or there that can be exploited to make them right. seem you know anti-Trump. Yeah, didn't fully stand behind exactly. him. Or didn't give him a exactly. full enough throat to do Which is, you know on the flip side in Texas, that's something that I think a lot of Republicans uh, you know have a shared experience with because they supported Ted Cruz right. in the in the presidential primary or, and so or even Rick Perry totally. yeah exactly so, so is there is there any like really <laughs> perfect example or are there a couple of races sure. where this is really yeah I mean there are out? case studies all over the place so in the in the fifth congressional district where Jeb Hensterling is retiring uh, the Club for Growth is attacking Lance Gooden, who's a current member of the legislature, for uh, voting, in their words, to raise taxes in the legislature when Donald Trump has been pushing to cut taxes at mm -hmm. the federal level. So they, they say that he's out of step with Trump uh, on taxes because of that. Um, you know, we just saw in uh, the 21st congressional district where the, the club has endorsed Chip Roy, his opponent, Matt McCall, said at a recent forum that he would not leave his daughters alone with, with President Trump, just kind of as a, a joking comment. And immediately we saw the uh, pro uh, Chip Roy forces seize on that comment to make mm -hmm. it seem like McCall was uh, at odds with the president. Although Chip Roy is like, you know, <laughs> the biggest Ted Cruz right, guy exactly. there is. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so in many cases, it's it, this dynamic uh, is creating really strange uh, bedfellows. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you know, throwback Wednesday, the Club for Growth was one of the groups that made Ted Cruz exactly. possible right. against David Dewhurst in 2012. Yeah. And it's a group that spent pretty lavishly against Donald Trump right. in the 2016 presidential primary. Well, fun to watch. All right, well, that's all the time we have. If you like listening to the Tribcast every week, we've got something brand new for you, an audio news brief that shows up every morning on your Amazon Alexa smart speaker or podcast player. You can learn more at trib.it slash thebriefpodcast. Thanks to Shiny Ribs for our music and to Visit San Antonio, the Latino Center for Leadership Development, and Raise Your Hand Texas, our sponsors this week. On behalf of Ross, Patrick, Jolie, and our producers Todd and Regina, this is Emily. Thanks for listening. Texas some shredded is it a shredded chicken sandwich Ooh, that also that's like good. that buffalo sauce and blue cheese it's amazing mm. and it has chunks of celery where's so this good. Irene's. Irene's. you lost me at chunks of celery no,